So today we're interviewing a uh, lead scientist of Revive and Restore, Ben Novak. Uh, ben Novak, welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm really happy to be here. So uh, let's jump straight in. Um, what is Revive and Restore and what, what do you do? Yeah, so I mean, well, well, we're very unique. Um, uh, Revive and Restore was founded in 2012 by Ryan Phelan and Stuart Brand. Um, both of which had a history of being entrepreneurs and starting nonprofits and, and uh, in, in kind of, you know, technology solutions. And, and, um, and they were really intrigued about the idea that new biotechnologies could be used for wildlife conservation. And while we started with the grand um, idea of de-extinction, from the very start, the idea was that we were taking on these kind of moonshot projects to advance biotechnology for all forms of, of, of conservation. So we call that genetic rescue. And we're a very unique wildlife conservation nonprofit in that space. I believe we're possibly one of the only ones in the world that's actually really promoting um, both the innovation and adoption of biotechnologies for conservation. Mm -hmm. And just for those who are unfamiliar, what, what is de-extinction? De-extinction, yes. I mean, it's it's the one that gets the headlines. So two of uh, three of our projects are de-extinction projects. Three out of thirty, some of our projects um, now. Um, we have the woolly mammoth project, the passenger pigeon project, and the heath hen project. All three of those species went extinct and could potentially play a very vital role to conservation today. Um, because they're extinct, there's very little way of actually just recreating them um, uh, and bringing them back to life, so to speak. But that's the what we're trying to do at de-extinction is trying to figure out how can we use new biotechnologies to recreate um, these extinct species back into their environment. And it really hinges on three main technologies, and that's paleogenomics, uh, basically being able to sequence old DNA from museum skins and fossils and whatnot. So we can actually get the genomes of those extinct species. And then gene editing technology uh, with CRISPR-Cas9 now and, and the, the various ways CRISPR has been innovated since 2012 is really the technology that has made this uh, uh, possible to move from science fiction into science reality. Um, but of course, gene editing happens in a Petri dish and petri dishes are not animals or plants. <laughs> um, so you have to actually go from cells in a petri dish to a living breathing organism. And that's where the third component comes in, the advanced reproductive technologies, things like uh, cloning or, or stem cell gametogenesis. Uh, and, and so all of these three technologies finally kind of advance to the stage where we could consider maybe trying to recreate something like a woolly mammoth or a passenger pigeon. And so, so that's what we've, uh, we've taken on. So speaking of science fiction, let's just briefly address the elephant in the room when discussing the subject, Jurassic Park. This has been brought up in almost every interview before, I'm <laughs> sure, but our listeners will be thinking about it. Um, it's, it it's inevitable. It's, it's inevitable. This movie, yeah. How has this movie or others like it, how have they affected the public perception of, whole thing, of the whole thing? And how does that color your actions, if in any way at all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, first, I just want to state that, of course, um, I saw Jurassic Park when I was very young. I was, uh, um, I was six years old when Jurassic Park came into theater, and I don't, my parents did not let me watch it when I was six. Um, uh, I watched it when I was a little older, um, because, of course, everyone fears that a six-year-old can't handle scary dinosaurs. Uh, but, of course, they can. Every six-year-old wants to see T-Rex uh, on the screen. 
Um, but it's anyway, the, I, I, I love the, the movie. I into letting us watch it when I was five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I love the movie. It's, it's a very fun movie, uh, entertaining, thrilling, and scary. Um, but it's just that. I mean, I, mean, I think it, the, the thorn it is in my side for this very real world work um, is that it's really the world's only pop culture reference to this type of thing. And, but, and so people kind of tend to forget that all of the plot points in it were, were deliberately set up to create a narrative. You know, there, it wasn't built the way you would build an actual scientific project. It wasn't even built the way you would build an actual theme park, right? I mean, Disney World doesn't have one IT person uh, responsible for all of their security. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's a movie just littered with plot holes when you dissect it, but that doesn't ever translate into the conversation. I think people's fears are that we could be bringing back mammoths or passenger pigeons for, for the wrong reasons, um, you know, for profit gain, for fame, something like that, uh, that this is happening behind closed doors on some private you know, estate, um, that people don't have a voice in this. And also the idea that maybe some of these extinct species, once they're back in the environment, could be dangerous. Um, and I think there's, those are a lot of legitimate fears that people have, and it's not how we're doing our work. So um, I'm, I'm always happy to confront that elephant in the room um, and just remind everyone that mammoths and pigeons are not dinosaurs. And in fact, dinosaurs are something we cannot recreate or bring back. Um, they're, they're, they've been gone way too long. There is no dinosaur DNA to even look at. You know, maybe someday we'll be able to recreate something that looks like a dinosaur from, say, a, a living chicken or emu or something, but it'll just be a lookalike. It will have none of the actual kind of genetic legacy of those extinct dinosaurs. And I, I do question anyone's motives doing something like that. Um, there is no ecological place today for dinosaurs in the environment. They've been gone 65 million years and mammals and, and birds and, and everything that's alive today that, that has evolved over millions of years has, has filled the globe. There's, there's no environment that you could just drop a dinosaur in and expect um, a, a, a decent outcome. That is, however, quite different with species we've lost in the last uh, 10 to 20,000 years where the extinction the extinctions of the last 125,000 years have been primarily driven by changes made by people as they've spread across the globe. And this is where I think time, I'm actually from an evolutionary uh, and paleontology background. And this is where time I think trips people up is um, even though a mammoth has been gone for thousands of years, which seems like a long time, from an evolutionary perspective, that's, that's like a blink of an eye. So six, 65 million years is a long time. So dinosaurs don't have a place today. But a species average lifespan is, is about three to five million years. So anything that's gone extinct in the last 100,000 years is, you know, had likely a few million years left to go before they would have naturally evolved into something else or gone extinct. And so all of the species we have alive today were once co-evolved with woolly mammoths and passenger pigeons and woolly rhinoceros and you know other things. So the, those species still have the evolutionary cues to respond to those species when they're brought back into the environment. So we can absolutely bring back things from the ice age and expect good outcomes. Um, we can possibly technologically bring those species back. 
but uh, but Jurassic Park is is will will continue to be science fiction. And and yep. speaking of bringing back things, there has already been a de-extinction that has occurred, isn't that right? Even even if depends on your perspective. That was an attempt, at least. Yes. Um, so so yeah, in two thousand so in the year two thousand a subspecies of ibex in Europe, the Pyrenean ibex, known as the bucardo, um, went extinct. The last living member was actually killed in a storm. Um, and there's a long, very uh, intricate history to that population's history, um, which I've now repeated, edit that. There's a very long, complicated history with that species. Um, but uh, amazingly, when the last one was alive, a team of researchers caught it, they took a tissue sample and they, they froze it away. They created a cell line and froze it away. And so even though the last one was killed in the year 2000, in the year 2003, they took those cells and made a clone of that individual. Um, sadly, the clone only lived for about seven minutes. So it has the distinction of being the only uh, animal in the world to go extinct twice depending on how you, you look at it. A dubious There's, honor if ever there was one. Yeah, the dubious honor. Now, the scientist in me, of course, wants to argue that, you know, like one animal is not a species. So technically it was never actually revived. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so it can't go extinct twice. Um, but, you know, that's the other thing is they, they only managed to get cells from one last female. So there was no hope of ever actually bringing back the entire species from one individual, they would have had to hybridize it with a living subspecies and, and do a lot of complex breeding. Um, so, but it was a major point for a lot of reasons. You know, it got people thinking about the idea that you could bring a species back uh, after it's gone extinct. Um, but I think what it really means for us is, is about preparation. You know, the next time there is a species teetering on the edge of extinction, people need to get in and they need to get samples before there's one left, when there's you know several dozen, several hundreds that you can have males and females and, and whole family groups represented and then bring back an actual species rather than just uh, uh, a single individual. Because even if that single individual had lived, it still would have been a long road towards some type of odd hybrid recovery. Um, the, I think the other thing that people drew away from that story that was problematic was the idea that um, somehow it was a failure because the animal died. Um, the animal had a, a malformed uh, lung, actually had an extra lobe in its lung. Um, and deformities do happen with cloning. Um, they're, they're actually quite rare though. Um, it's, it's actually people commonly believe that abnormalities are really, really common in cloning, but, but healthy births are far more common than abnormalities. And it comes down to numbers. If that if that group had had the chance and the funding to really do more work and higher capacity, they definitely would have gotten a healthy clone. Um, but once again, you know, it, it would have been a long road to really recovering an entire species. So, so it's, it's kind of de-extinction and kind of not at the same time. In, in 2018, I academically argued in my paper that the Bucardo is not actually extinct um, because those cells that live in a vial frozen away are living cells. Um, you know, they're on ice, but they are alive. When you thaw them out, their DNA synthesizes and they grow. And so even though they are not an entire living Bucardo, they are a living piece 
of that species. And so there's a, a biological part of them that is continues to live. And so I argued that really you can't say that they're extinct. And if they're not actually extinct, then you can't bring them back from extinction. You can only save them from extinction. So I actually believe the Bucardo is a, a case of, of extreme possible recovery. Um, and that, you know, it's, it's very different from something like a mammoth or a passenger pigeon where they went extinct uh, long before we could freeze away cells and things like that. Um, and so, yeah, I invented the term evolutionarily torpid to describe species that are currently on ice, but, but we have something that could actually bring them completely back. Um, because it is different with mammoths and passenger pigeons, since we don't have a living cell, we can't actually duplicate an individual passenger pigeon or woolly mammoth. What we have to do is we can sequence their genomes and compare them to a living species, but we have to take the living species, a close living relative, as the actual template for recreating them. We can introduce several dozen, perhaps hundreds or thousands of of mutations from an extinct species into the living organism and hopefully create something that looks and behaves and, and is from a natural history perspective, the extinct species. But from a genetic perspective, it's actually a hybrid. It will be something that has the DNA from an extinct species in a small little bit of its genome, but the rest of its genome is from a living species. And so it's, it is very different. And that's another reason why I think the, uh, the idea of bringing back the Bucardo is, is, is in a very different class than the types of things we're trying to do. So um, that whole idea with a species on ice reminds me somewhat of our conversation, son, about whether or not the Tasmanian uh, devil transmittable cancer, the cancer is a tetrapod because it is genetically <laughs> the same animal as the, as the Tasmanian devil and is self-transmitting. But let's not get into that. Yeah, and I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I suppose this makes the frozen zoo the ultimate wildlife sanctuary. It does. The very, it does. It the does. Very, the very last refuge. Very boring yeah, I mean, safari tours, though. Exactly. You know, and, you know, the, this frozen zoo is what has made our, our most recent genetic rescue milestones with uh, with black-footed ferrets and Shavalsky's horses possible. And like that, that was the reason for me arguing, like I did in my paper, that these species are basically they're not dead; they're on ice because every species alive today, at some point in its life history, is a single cell. You know, you, all of us sitting here talking started as a single-celled embryo that then grew into a human being. Um, and so, you know, since that is a passage of life for every organism, if you still have a single cell and it's capable of developing into a whole organism, then you do have an individual. And so, well, you know, this is a good example. So the, the northern white rhinoceros has two living females left. So the, the species is extinct. There's no hope that they can reproduce a new northern white rhino without biotechnology. Things like artificial insemination, uh, in vitro fertilization, cloning, uh, using stem cells. People are exploring all of these to try and help that species. At the frozen zoo in San Diego, they have cell lines from 12 distinct northern rhinoceroses, and they have about a million cells from each of them. So since every single one of those cells could potentially become an individual living northern white rhinoceros, even though there are only two living adult northern white rhinoceroses, there are 12 million single cell white rhinoceroses in the frozen zoo. 
Is, um, is anyone currently looking at doing that as a sort of revival project like has been done for the Blackfooted Ferret? Yes, yes. San Diego Zoo actually has a very mobilized program uh, that started about five to six years ago um, to, to do that. They are exploring using stem cells. Uh, so rather than cloning, they will be taking those cells, which in the frozen zoo are, are skin cells, a, a certain type of skin cell called a fibroblast. They're very easy to grow. So they get skin samples, they grow those cells, they freeze them away. Um, fibroblasts happen to be the kind of cells that, uh, um, that the Nobel Prize winner that created induced pluripotent stem cells, and forgive me, I have forgotten his name, Yamanaka. Okay, I was going to say Yam Yamaka. Yamanaka, Shinya Yamanaka, um, you know, took human fibroblasts and turned them into stem cells again. He reprogrammed to go back to a stem cell state. And stem cells are famous, of course, because they can become any kind of cell. They're the, they're the progenitor of all tissue types when an embryo is developing. And so since he could take an adult fibroblast and turn it back into a stem cell, he could then create any kind of tissue after that. Um, and so Yamanaka actually won the Nobel Prize for that work because it has been so pivotal for, for things in medicine. And uh, people at the San Diego Zoo um, with collaborators at the Scripps Institute learned back in, uh, I think it was, oh God, 14 or 15, that they could actually do the same thing with other animal cells. People do this with mice, but they hadn't really done it with wild animals. So they took Northern white rhinoceros fibroblasts and turned them into stem cells. And they didn't think too much of it at the time. Um, like they knew there was a potential for that technology in the future. But then a couple of years later, people took mice fibroblasts turn them into stem cells and then turn those stem cells into sperm and egg cells and created wow. embryos from them and gave birth to basically baby, baby mice from skin cells without cloning. So, you know, until that point, the only way to take a skin cell and make it, yeah. Yeah, so until wait. that point, the only way to make an animal was cloning, but the stem cell route, it's, 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 it's very different. And so that's what the San Diego Zoo is pursuing. They, uh, they are creating stem cells from all 12 of the Northern white rhino lines they have. And they're working to turn those into sperm and eggs to actually create embryos through IVF. And, and then they'll implant those. They have, they have eight Southern white rhinoceros mothers they work with that will be the recipients for those embryos when they create them. I mean, I, mean, I think there's, there's absolutely, it's, it's not if they will succeed, it's about when. You know, at some point in the next decade, we will see a new generation of, of northern white rhinoceroses born from stem cells. Um, I think we will also see some born from traditional IVF because some teams in Europe have managed to um, obtain some egg cells from the living females. There are some frozen semen samples as well. Um, so I think that the northern white rhinoceros will be saved from extinction. But it's a really interesting case because I also believe it will probably be saved from extinction after the last two living females die. So, so uh, it'll be like the Bucardo all over again, except this time because there's an, enough momentum and support behind it. And they have males and females from genetically diverse lines. You know, they, they will actually be able to recover an entire species. That's fantastic. And what was the procedure used for uh, the Przewalski's horse and Blackfooted Ferret that Revive and Restore brought back? Yeah, so um, with those, we use traditional cloning um, with the company Viagen Pets and Equine. Um, you know, cloning has actually uh, become 
highly utilized in agriculture around the world, um, everywhere but Europe, um, where it's banned um, for a very odd, archaic reason. Um, but uh, uh, here in the United States, uh, yeah, uh, Viagen is a company that clones cattle, pigs, sheep for the agricultural sector by the thousands, right? Um, they're cloned in medicine by the thousands. Um, but very rarely are, are wild animals cloned, um, particularly for conservation. Um, our projects are actually the very first true conservation cloning projects because every other project before was really about research, whether or not they could clone an extinct, I mean, I mean, sorry, not an extinct, whether or not they could clone an endangered species. Whereas we cloned a specific individuals with the full intent of breeding them for a particular purpose. Um, and that was all possible um, because of things like the frozen zoo. So what we did is we cloned a black-footed ferret from cells that were frozen in 1988. And we cloned a Chevalsky's horse from cells that were frozen in 1980. Both of the animals we uh, cloned had died decades ago. Um, and um, in the case of the black-footed ferret, the one we cloned has absolutely no living descendants. And the one, the Chevalsky's horse has very few living descendants. So their, their genetics are very underrepresented. And for these species, the reason that matters so much is because both of these species got down to a point where they went extinct in the wild. There were so few left that they were literally saved by zoos breeding them. Um, they got to a point where there were, were only um, all, all 2000 living Chevalsky's horses traced their ancestry to 12 individual Chevalsky's horses. Um, it's a little more complex than that, but because uh, there was a couple domestic horses brought in, but there are 12 there were only 12 wild horses left at one point in time that they can trace their ancestry to. And the black-footed ferret, they trace all of their, the, the living black-footed ferrets trace all of their ancestry to just seven black-footed ferrets. And so they have these tiny gene pools. They're, they're not really in trouble from inbreeding yet, but it is a severe threat to their future. And genetic diversity is always the solution for, for these types of things. So we thought, where can we get new genetic diversity for these, these species. And the only place to go was to reach back in time. And luckily there were these cell lines that had been frozen away from, from animals that can contribute valued, valuable diversity. And so for the black-footed ferret, uh, Elizabeth Ann, who is probably the most famous clone in history now other than Dolly, um, she's actually you know, the, the, the eighth new genetic animal to that entire species. Um, which is just just huge. Um, and she's doing great. She is alive and healthy and well. Uh, they're both doing really well. Um, um, they were completely healthy, you know, um, clones, once again, showing that that is possible. We, we will continue to work on cloning more black-footed ferrets and horses, Chevalsky's horses, for conservation. Um, but yeah, that was just tried and true uh, uh, cloning technology, the same thing used for Dolly the sheep. Yes, all right. Old technology, but brand new conservation. There's obviously great application here for species with the genetic bottlenecks in their history. I could think of uh, Vicent, Vicent too, a European bison seems an obvious case. And I don't know if they have material in the frozen zoo from Vaquitas yet, but now might be the time to get it if they don't. Yeah, I mean, you know, the sad thing is, is it, it's actually really rare. You know, the, the, the San Diego frozen zoo has cell lines from a thousand species and there are biobanks around the world. There's the ARC project based in Britain. Um, there's the global genome biobank network that has facilities in Munich and, and South Africa and everywhere that, that have samples, but it's never been truly strategic like to go out and get 
a hundred individuals of this endangered species that represent the whole range or whatnot and get them frozen away. It's, it's almost always been opportunistically. And so it was really incredible that we had the opportunity to clone both um, Kurt and Elizabeth Ann from those cell lines. Um, and they really press upon the need that, you know, especially since we're losing, continuing to lose habitat, which means we're losing numbers, we're still losing species today, um, that the future of conservation hinges on restoration. Like we really want to do everything we can to save everything we have, but it's until we change how we make food, energy, and run our economy, like how, until we change how we secure natural resources, basically, we will continue to lose things. So the future of conservation is definitely going to, going to hinge upon restoration. And we'll be able to restore entire species if we take the right precautions today. And so we definitely need to get out there and biobank more. Because today, I mean, it would be nice to clone historic Wissant or, you know, historic Iberian lynx or other things like that, species that went through these bottlenecks and helped them. But for most of those species, none of that material exists. Um, but just like how we're talking about bringing back woolly mammoths or passenger pigeons, there's, you know, there's no short shortage of ways that we might be able to help the genetic diversity of those endangered species. So when it comes to say the Wissant, we could sequence samples from Wissant from decades, hundreds, or even thousands of years ago, compare those genomes to living animals and find, you know, what are the, the key genes where they've lost diversity. And we could actually use the same gene editing technologies that we plan to use on a mammoth or a passenger pigeon and apply it to an endangered species to get back diversity that they've lost. Um, which is something we will be doing with black-footed ferrets. Um, we will also be applying gene editing to provide genetic immunity to disease um, with the black-footed ferret, which is also a huge, huge issue in the world today. I think that that really hit home for people. I think after the COVID, you know, it's still in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, I think it can now finally really translate to public audiences that disease is a major issue. It's actually been an issue affecting conservation and wild species for centuries as Europeans colonized the globe, they brought diseases with them. Um, they brought invasive species of rats and, you know, and, and, and other animals that brought their diseases with them. And we have exposed animals on islands and continents all over the world to diseases they never had any history with. And then we degraded their habitat and reduced their numbers so that they lost diversity to even be able to evolve with those diseases. We have really crippled species in such a way that zoom forward to today with the onset of extreme rapid climate change that's going to make it easier for diseases to transmit and spread. Like disease is a huge issue and we absolutely have to find ways to, to solve that. And genetic editing is going to be a key component to fight that battle, to give species a, a leg up to have antibodies that can actually recognize and attack new diseases um, and, or, or, you know, animals that produce their own vaccines the way that we got the, you know, very similar to how the COVID-19 vaccine works. You know, it's an mRNA you inject into your system. It may be possible to actually put that into an animal to where there's a gene that expresses the mRNA of a disease and gives them that vaccine at the right time in their life. There's a lot of things we're exploring. Um, definitely no shortage of how these technologies can help. So there's clearly a lot of very important genetic tools to help living species, but uh, let's talk a little bit about de-extinction itself, and particularly uh, the two sort of flagship projects, the mammoths and the passenger pigeons. I mean, you yourself are 
to some extent, uh, the architect behind the passenger pigeon project or, or one of the architects. Could you talk a little bit about what the sort of step-to-step -step process of making a passenger pigeon is? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, well, well, first you're pulling at my heartstrings. Uh, the passenger pigeon is my, is my favorite. Um, I was hired to lead that project and, and it, is, it is my goal with that project um, that it, it does become the archetype for how de-extinction projects uh, move forward in the future. Um, the, uh, there's, there's basically five stages to de-extinction um, that of course, by the time we actually create one, you know, happen linearly, but the science behind it is actually a circle. Um, so the first stage is sequencing the DNA of the extinct species and comparing it to the DNA of its most close living relative. For some species, we know that living relative. For others, we have to discover it. Um, so we knew that the passenger pigeon's closest living relative was the uh, West Coast band-tailed pigeon. They're extremely ecologically similar, but they're very different in how they behave in the environment. Um, and so while one could imagine just bringing a band-tailed pigeon into the Eastern United States, it would thrive there for sure, but it would never actually take on the ecology of the passenger pigeon. Mm -hmm. so, so the alternate routes, you know, really don't exist for the pigeon. Um, so we're left with the idea of taking that living band-tailed pigeon and changing its genome through gene editing technology at all the right spots so that it then can behave and take on the ecology of a passenger pigeon. And how we're going to get there is, so we've sequenced the genomes and we've published those genomes um, in 2017. Um, the next is we'll take some cells in a petri dish and we'll do the gene editing. And for birds, we can't actually use cloning to recreate one. So what we have to do is we actually have to take a very special type of cell called a primordial germ cell. It's a type of stem cell that becomes sperm or egg. It won't become any other type of tissue. And so we get those primordial germ cells from a, an embryonic band-tailed pigeon and we edit those. And then we, after they're edited, we will implant those back into an embryo. And in this case, it's not like putting a cloned baby into a mom. What we have to do is we have to take those primordial germ cells and put them into a surrogate mother and a surrogate father. And so those can be just normal street pigeons. Um, they don't have to be band-tailed pigeons. Um, you know, ideally it could possibly even be the domestic chicken someday, um, just as this universal host where we have a parent that then lays an egg and even though it's a normal looking bird on the outside, inside of its testes and its ovaries are the edited germ cells that we made. So they, they create passenger pigeon sperm and passenger pigeon eggs and those come together and out of a domestic pigeon or a domestic chicken egg hatches a extinct passenger pigeon. Um, and from there, it's really uh, left to um, things that have been done for dozens of species to this point. That's where we start captive breeding and releasing to the wild. And, and that's things you know, that, that are, are over a century old with saving species, things like the California condor or, or the Mauritian kestrel, things where you know, people breed in captivity, they build up numbers and then they start releasing to the wild. There's a whole sequence of science and events that, that go into that. But, uh, but conservation has a really good track record with that. So, um, so we will be building off of the very best practices with that, um, things that have worked with other pigeon species in particular. There are a few new things we're, willing, we're interested to try for this species, um, but things that they're new for this species, of course, but uh, come from, 
from other conservation efforts. So really it's those first three stages, sequencing the genome, editing the cells and creating these surrogate parents. That's what's new um, that we're bringing into this fold. Um, so to ask, because people will be wondering about this, uh, why can't we clone a passenger pigeon? Why are birds different from mammals in this regard? So when you, when you clone something, you take an egg cell and you remove its nucleus. And so you're looking under a microscope at these tiny little cells in, um, in the Petri dish and you manipulate it. You have a tiny microscopic needle that goes in, punctures the egg cell and sucks out its nucleus, sucks out its DNA. And then you implant the DNA from the animal you're trying to clone. Um, and this, once, once the whole set of DNA comes in from that donor cell, the egg cell, um, gets kind of basically triggered to believe it's been fertilized and gets stimulated to become an embryo. And then you can take that embryo and implant it into the uterus of uh, a living mammalian mother. And there's several reasons why cloning birds is really difficult, uh, bordering on impossible. The first is that a, a bird egg cell is actually a, a yolk. So when you crack open an egg for breakfast, that yolk is actually an entire single cell. They're the largest cells in the world. And somewhere in that giant opaque mess of yolk is a tiny little nucleus floating around that is microscopic. And so first you throw that on a, under a microscope and it's opaque, there's nothing you can see. So you have to actually find the nucleus to get rid of it. And the cell is so large and so dark that it's just, it's almost impossible to find. There have been people that have used various types of lighting, uh, radiation, and, and chemicals to find the nucleus, but um, it, it only worked about 3% of the time where you could actually find it and get and remove it. Then you have to, you know, fuse the new cell and create an embryo, which you can do, but birds develop very poorly from a single cell embryonic stage. Um, it's very difficult to get them to grow up. You can put them in a surrogate eggshell um, and try to coax them, which has been done, but I believe it only had like a one in 700 uh, effective, you know, uh, percentage rate. Um, you can also transfer them into a surrogate mother chicken for the eggshell to move around. And that actually has a, a high chance of working, but it's such a different reproductive system from the uterus, which is static and, and eggs in, the, in a bird are moving, constantly moving and being formed by the time they're laid that it's just it's an extremely difficult process to interrupt um so it's just it's just challenging because of the yolk and the reproductive system basically and this extends to reptiles too so anything that that lays a hard shelled egg is is facing these challenges for cloning which is why people came up with the the germ cell uh transplanting method um which works really well in domestic chickens um and you know, it, it's, it's basically targeting embryos before they're made rather than making them and implanting them. Um, but it does present some challenges. It's, it's worked very well for domestic chickens, but you have to be able to grow these germ cells in a Petri dish and growing cells in a Petri dish is no easy feat. People talk about it a lot, but cells tend to like to grow as part of an organism, not in a Petri dish. And, and so while cells might live for a couple of weeks in a Petri dish, after that, they tend to die if you don't give them the right cocktail of nutrients to keep surviving. And it's been very difficult to use the nutrients that keep domestic chicken cells alive to keep other types of bird germ cells alive. So wild birds clearly have some unique biology 
that has been altered in the domestication of the chicken to where the domestic chicken recipe doesn't work. And so we do not yet have the ability to culture the germ cells of a pigeon and do this. That's something that we're uh, going to uh, start exploring in the next couple of years with um, collaborators at the Rockefeller University. Um, we have a team already exploring germ cell culture for the Heath Hen Project with Greater Prairie Chickens at Texas A&M University. Um, so we're, we're trying to push into that space of advancing these technologies used in poultry for other species, but it has been slow going partly because um, there's one, there's just not a lot of support for conservation in the world monetarily, uh, but two, for research interests, you know, the chicken is really the king animal. There's, they're a bioreactor for medicine. They're the most consumed meat in the world. So there's, there's been very little incentive to go beyond the chicken, but we're, we're pushing that envelope, not just for de-extinction, but as I mentioned before, with all these biotechnologies having so many applications for endangered species, there are thousands of endangered birds that could really use some help um, from genetic rescue. And so we, we definitely need to innovate these technologies for all birds. So that's where we're starting right now. So I guess we can add to the list of reasons why Jurassic Park would never work that we can't even clone modern dinosaurs, let alone extinct ones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the, um, egg, the egg problem is another big but, barrier to dinosaurs. <laughs> there's the whole 66 million years ago problem, but there's also just the eggs. Yeah, um, yeah. But as a last thing on passenger pigeons before we move on, you talked a lot about behavior and how that is really the biggest difference between them and the extant banded tail pigeon. Do we know what the flocking gene is, even in modern pigeons? Would we be able to recognize it if we found it? That's the hope. So no, we don't. Um, so there is an element of discovery in all of this work. Uh, you know, people, we, we understand a lot about genetics compared to, you know, when you think about where we were 20 years ago um, before, before genomics came on the landscape. But there are tens of thousands of genes, usually about 20,000 genes in a vertebrate of any kind. And we know very little about what each of them does. Um, and a single gene is most often involved in multiple pathways in the cell. So we might know what it does in one pathway and know very little about what it does in another. Things like behavior uh, appear to be genetically and environmentally influenced. Um, so there's, and, and there's most likely multiple different types of genes that influence that behavior. So we're hoping that by comparing these genomes of domestic pigeons and other pigeon species with the bantail pigeon and the passenger pigeon that you know, we'll definitely be able to find the potential genes that really stand out. Um, but it's, uh, we've, got, we've got our work cut out for us on, on that front. Um, so the passenger pigeon of course was, was hypersocial. It's, it's the only pigeon species of the 350 pigeon species in the world that was a colonial breeder. Um, so while colonial breeding is the norm for seabirds um, and, and some other types of groups of birds in pigeons, it's unheard of except for the passenger pigeon. Um, but that colonial breeding and that hyper-social density that they lived at is what made their ecological footprint on the landscape. When a giant flock of, of a billion birds would come in, it would, break down branches as they were crowding on trees and deposit tons of guano on the ground and basically create the effect of a forest fire or a storm, as well as a, a fertilizer all at the same time. And the forest would then kick into regeneration mode and be this incredible regenerating habitat for other wildlife. 
that's what we want back on the landscape. But we could put 5 billion band-tailed pigeons in the Eastern US and they would never form a flock of a billion birds to do that. They, they, when they breed, they spread out. And so there would never be that impact again. There would just be billions of pigeons roaming around. Whereas we want billions of pigeons roaming around as one little nucleus of a flock going from one spot to another and then another. So it's very, very different dynamics on the landscape. And while I do believe, absolutely believe there is huge genetic underpinnings to that, we know that there are going to be environmental factors to that, particularly, you know, you're more likely to be social if you grow up in a social environment. So our plan is to take our genetically engineered band-tailed pigeons that have the genes for hypersociality once we discover those um, and raise them in an environment that simulates living in a hypersocial environment. So we'll raise them with domestic pigeon parents that have been kind of a, trained into living in a, in a tree like a colony. And I think probably the, the best technology we have to use is just uh, auditory. We will play recordings on a, on a level that make it sound like they're surrounded by millions of other birds. Um, and while um, you know, simulating a flock for this purpose for breeding has not been done, it actually has been used and is one of the very first types of uh, uh, conservation interventions for colonially breeding seabirds. When people have wanted to try and get seabirds to recolonize islands where they've been extirpated, they have set up speakers that play the sounds of a breeding colony. And then when birds are flying by, they end up getting fooled into believing there's already a breeding colony on the island. So they come and they land and they start breeding and, and multiple breeding colonies have been established in new or, or, or uh, extirpated ranges of seabirds using a combination of dummies of birds that, that are just dummies out in the environment with those speakers playing the sounds of a colony. So, uh, so I think that's going to be a really powerful tool for us to use is, is making the birds believe they're growing up in a flock of millions when they may only be growing up with a couple dozen of their own kind. Yeah, so as Very you said, clearly have your work cut out for you in that regard. Um, yeah, yeah. I think we should move on. So, mammoths. We've been bringing back the mammoth for the last 20 years now. Is it actually going to happen? <laughs> what exactly is the status there? Um, yeah, so uh, mammoth de-extinction has a long, colorful history, actually. Uh, uh, so people in, in both, I believe, Japan and Korea have been attempting to clone mammoths from frozen permafrost tissues going, you know, they've been trying that for, yeah, 20, 20 some years. Um, I, I, I do wish them the best of luck. I, from a scientific standpoint, I don't believe it's feasible. Um, I, I would love to be proven wrong, but the, the, the fact is that those tissues, you know, people hear about it all the time. You're like, oh, oh, we pulled up a frozen mammoth from the permafrost and, and, you know, it has plants still in its teeth and things like that. You hear about these miraculous finds. Um, even scientists that have eaten mammoth meat, um, uh, Hendrik Poinar once told me he ate some and it, it tasted like soil, um, because it's been in the dirt for 40,000 years. That makes sense. Um, but that's just the thing is, is you know, the, the permafrost is not a cryopreservation collection. It's not a frozen zoo. It's, it keeps things cold and frozen, but they've still deteriorated. 
the DNA we get out of frozen mammoth tissues is is heavily fragmented. The cells are lysed. There, there's not anything really viable there. Even if there is a viable nuclear body, it might be like one in a trillion. And then so you're trying to hunt down in this piece of tissue which single cell might give you a mammoth. And and uh, that single cell is that's that's lowering your odds a lot. Um, in 2013, uh, revive and restore. You know, we we, uh, we brought in George Church. Well, we didn't bring in George Church. That's a bad way of saying it. George Church decided to make his effort for cloning the woolly mammoth, uh, not cloning, sorry, for recreating the woolly mammoth, part of Revive and Restore's uh, efforts. And that's taking a very different approach. So, so for the past eight years, the idea there is that they'll take living elephant cells and use gene editing to recreate the, the traits of the mammoth the same way that we're doing with passenger pigeons. And that project actually is uh, coming along. So um, George Church's team has edited over 40 different uh, genes in the elephant genome from a mammoth. And the reason it's taking a bit of time is, is one, they first tested out these things in African elephant cells because those cells were very easy to get a hold of and work with. And so there was just kind of proving the technical uh, difficulty uh, could be done there. And then moving to replicating that work in Asian elephant cells. Asian elephants are the closest living relatives of mammoths. Um, and, and they are chugging along doing more gene editing in those cells, uh, still mining the genomes of Asian elephants and woolly mammoths to look at what the di key differences are. Um, a main phase of that project is going to be using induced pluripotent stem cells to take those gene edited skin cells in the petri dish and turn them into fat cells and blood and and you know uh, skin that grows hair things like that and making organoid chips and things that so that they can actually observe are we seeing phenotypic differences um, in from the edits so rather than creating a baby mammoth as an experiment and going, oh, did we get it right? And do we need to make more changes? The idea is that all of the testing will happen in vitro, in cell culture. And the team has had a lot of difficulty creating induced pluripotent stem cells from Asian elephant cells. So um, it turns out ele elephant cells, partly because of how long lived those animals are and, 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 and the way they've evolved, um, have some barriers to creating stem cells as easily as it is done in humans and mice. So, so they are still overcoming those uh, barriers. Revive and Restore has actually, uh, uh, we're just hiring a postdoc to take on the woolly mammoth project challenges because the team has been going in and out. Like all de-extinction projects, these aren't really, um, you know, these aren't like fully funded, full-time uh, uh, academic, you know, uh, driven things. Uh, you know, George Church's lab does hundreds of projects in biotech and DNA and science, and the Mammoth Project is like 0.5% of their lab's actual work. Um, so it's, you know, I think people, they see a lot of it in the news, but it's, it's, not, it's not like everything George Church is doing. Um, so we're hiring people to kind of give that more uh, full-time steam. And the, so the stem cell challenge is one to overcome, but the next one to overcome, of course, will be... Uh, actually giving birth to a woolly mammoth. While we do believe there are potential Asian elephant breeding partners that could help with that regard, 
um, George Church does have his sights set on creating an artificial uterus um, to birth the first mammoth, which they're experimenting with mice. And of course, an artificial uterus will open up all types of things for human medicine. Um, that's that's not just going to be a, a, a woolly mammoth gateway. That's going to be a literal revolution in, in human life and science. So, um, so it will happen. Um, and it is advancing. Uh, and, and the George and George, you know, our Revive and Restore's work with George Church will definitely, I think, be the woolly mammoth project that succeeds versus the efforts to clone and whatnot. But, uh, and, and we are trying to do those with full consciousness of, of, uh, the various ethical challenges of working with an animal that's 12, you know, nearly 12 feet high at the shoulder. Right. So it's a mm. giant, beautiful, very sentient animal. Um, that has a, a culture to it and everything. So, uh, so yeah, happy to talk more about that. So it seems like when CBS News says that the mammoth is going to come next year, possibly in a few months, they're being slightly melodramatic. <laughs> yeah, very melodramatic. Uh, but it might happen eventually in some in some form. Yeah, yeah. It's it's actually actually just very important to remember that an elephant's pregnancy is two years. So. So uh, since there are no elephants pregnant with woolly mammoths at the moment, it is definitely more than two years away <laughs> at the minimum. But it's, it's def I think it's definitely, Mammoth Project's definitely more, more than 10 years out. Um, so I think that's Once again, yeah. pending funding, right? Like if, if with, with more people on deck, more money going into something like this, like if there are people out there that want to see woolly mammoths back faster, um, the more people we can hire to put on this, these problems full time, the faster this happens. It seems like perhaps an area where there's more interest than there is concerted funding. Um, yeah, but that's de-extinction as a whole. It's also conservation as a whole. Yes. So it's a common issue. But you've already touched uh, several times now on what seems like a rather important distinction, which is this one between cloning and recreation slash gene engineering. These terms are often used interchangeably, but it seems like they're not. Also, what you've said previously about the cloning process, taking stem cells, recreating individuals versus tampering with cells in a separate animal and then recreating something that looks like what you might call a gestalt of this other animal. Um, and would you say that they're fundamentally different approaches? Yes, yes. Um, I mean, it's it's true for years people they keep they keep saying like oh they're going to clone a mammoth or they're going to clone a passenger pigeon and cloning is de-extinction and it's 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 yeah it's fundamentally not um cloning is i think i think there's a lot of there's a lot surrounding cloning a lot of myth a lot of there's just an atmosphere of lore around this idea of cloning cloning um is you know the term we're talking about making a copy um, but the actual process underlying it is something called somatic cell nuclear transfer. And that's just a tool. It's just a reproductive technique. Um, and so you can use somatic cell nuclear transfer to create an exact copy of an animal that once existed, or you can use it to take cells that have been genetically engineered in a Petri dish and produce a live animal. Um, in which case you're producing something that's brand new. Um, and I think that's the part that gets people a little fuzzy. It's like, okay, well, it's the same tool. In one, in one way, it's being used to clone. In another way, it's being used to make something new, something that's different. Um, 
and it just gets used interchangeably. Like we'll say that everyone's like, oh, well, we're going to genetically engineer this ferret and then we'll clone it. And it's like, well, it's not really how it's happening, but, uh, but it just gets easier with the language. This is where it becomes just a terminology barrier because cloning is so entrenched in, in the lexicon of how we communicate science, um, even internally among scientists. So, but yeah, it's, it's fundamentally different. You do not have to genetically engineer something to clone it. Um, and even if a species goes extinct, if you have material that could be cloned, things that have been frozen, um, you know, that clone, once again, is, it's not the same thing as a gene-edited mammoth or a gene-edited passenger pigeon, um, because you do get back a copy of your original species. Um, it's, it's really a continuation of the original. So, and that means very different things on an evolutionary tree and very different things when you're thinking of, uh, uh, you know, uh, just what that animal is. So cloning, of course, has limitations. There have only, there, so there have been 54 species and subspecies that have been cloned since 1957. It's actually a much older technology than people think. Um, the fir world's first clones were leopard frogs and Japanese pond frogs um, done by two different teams on different sides of the world. Um, it, both in 1957, the year my dad was born actually. So cloning is as old as my father. <laughs> um, and, and so people have cloned amphibians, fish, mammals, and a single insect, the fruit fly. Um, that, and most of this has just been proof of concept, like can we do it? Uh, but cloning has been used to study embryonic development, um, how cells reprogram genomes. Um, and of course it's, it's a heavily used tool in agriculture here in the United States, Canada, uh, even sporting animals and, and companion animals now in China, Korea, um, South America, there, there are cloning companies uh, that churn out literally hundreds and thousands of clones a year. Um, so cloning is an exceptionally widely used technology for about 20 or so different mammal species. Um, and yeah, I mean, it could be used more with endangered species. It's, uh, it's funny that it's not because it's an old technology, but, um, but yeah, oftentimes technologies can be in existence in one industry for a very long time without ever being recognized and adopted by another. It is a shame they were cloning those frogs when they could have been cloning the gastric brooding frog. Now that would have had long-term consequences. I know, right? Back when it was still still alive. Yeah. However, I, I have to, I'd have to clarify my history, but I do believe the gastric brooding frog had not yet been discovered at that time. Oh, that, but cloning was around at the time of its discovery. At, at the time of its discovery, so yeah. Could the, have the, the fun thing about amphibians, well, not fun, the funny thing is so there is a project working to try and clone the gastric brooding frog, which um, do they have DNA, frozen DNA? They do, and so they spoke at our first TEDx de extinction event, um, and uh, they actually found someone had frozen a couple of those frogs just in a regular freezer, whole bodies of them, and they were and they were able to get some cells from those frogs um, that had been frozen for 40, 40 over 40 years. Um, and, uh, and, and they created embryos that the cells were dividing, the embryos were alive, but all of the embryos quit growing at a particular stage. And this is something that's been known since the 50s. It's, uh, 
So when, when those first frogs were cloned back in the 50s, they were cloned from embryonic cells. And embryonic cells are very plastic. They're, 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 they're not yet really set in, they're not set in their ways, so to speak. So in, in cellular development, the beautiful thing about a stem cell is it becomes any other kind of cell. You know, but once your muscle, your muscle, and once your skin, your skin, that's the idea. Embryonic cells are still very, you know, they're developing. So you can take embryonic cells and they'll become things. Um, so from 1957 all the way to 1996, every single animal cloned had been cloned from embryonic cells, except for a few fish in China. That's, a, that's an interesting side note to the history. Um, but these amphibians were all cloned from tadpole cells or embryo cells. Um, and every time someone had tried to clone uh, a frog or a salamander from the tissue of an adult, a fully metamorphosed amphibian, it, it just didn't work. The, they would get the embryo to grow and then they would all just quit growing at the same stage. Um, and so there may be some ways around that and the gastric brooding fro pro frog program is trying to get a way around that because now that they have shown that they can get, that they have these living embryos um, they need to overcome that barrier because there's no hope of finding a tadpole from a gastric brooding, brooding frog to clone from. So, have they looked in the mouth of the frozen individuals? Huh? Have they looked in the mouth of the frozen individuals? <laughs> yeah, they should have. They should have looked in the stomach. That too. Um, I think this leads neatly into a sort of a deeper philosophical question, which is so when we're talking about the mammoths, at least the revive and restore program, we're not talking about cloning, we're talking about genetic recreation. Could we yeah. even call the hypothetical end product of that a mammoth? You know, there was a philosopher that wrote about this. It was like a 40-page paper. It was incredibly difficult to read. Um, and I've often, I've, I've gone back and forth on this question as to whether or not I really care. Um, and then back to like, well, maybe it is kind of important. It's... I think it's it's something that we wrestle with as humans because we uh, we have a lot of spare time on our hands. We're not running from predators and trying to survive. Um, but in nature, you know, ecosystems, the the way species evolve, the rest of biodiversity on this planet, it doesn't. They, biodiversity and evolution does not grapple with problems of identity, the way that we philosophically do, um, and that is why time and time again in different environments and at different times completely different lineages of organisms have evolved into virtually the same organism. Um, you know, it's why that they're, it's why different types of crustaceans keep evolving into crabs. Um, it's why the thylacine is a great deal like a coyote or a fox, even though it's a marsupial. The reason that there are marsupial moles, the reason that there are, um, there's literally twice been the fact that uh, two species of birds re-evolved from the exact same ancestors twice. Um, These were there, island I can't remember whales? which islands there were, but uh, there was a bird, some flightless bird on some island that went extinct. And then a hundred thousand years later, the, the same stock of birds from the mainland colonized and became the exact same bird again. Um, and they're not, you know, it's not the same species. It's not like it's resurrected. So nature has actually given us a window into this and, uh, you know, convergent evolution, all these things. It's all about the ecotype. It's, is this organism doing something within an ecosystem and an environment that one is successful and two meets particular goals? Um, 
And so if we put Asian elephants in Siberia and they are capable of surviving all year round to the ecosystem of Siberia, it is a mammoth. To us, it's an Asian elephant that has been gene edited. Um, so it's, comes from a different origin you know it's 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 been introduced by us it's it has all of this heavy baggage thinking scientifically and culturally but to the ecosystem it functions as a mammoth and and none of those questions matter it might be um, worth pointing out in a context like that the mammoth itself wasn't the first even the first elephant in that habitat it exactly. itself slotted into an earlier space left by another elephant and the same is true for almost any species. Um, I think there was some recent work done on this, a paper on the topic that species communities are much more stable than the individual species. So you very rarely see a community being completely replaced by a new community. What happens is that the individual species are gradually replaced by equivalent species over time until it's a completely new community. But it's a gradual process. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's that's the you know that's the thing that's been slowly emerging in ecology when you take the long-term perspective, and it's been critical for conservation when you're looking to um, make an ecosystem healthier. Is that ecosystems really are made up of functioning parts and roles, and those roles, just like you know, this is just like theater, right? A role can be taken on by different actors, and they will each bring a slightly different charisma or a different uh, emotion to a role, but two versions of Hamlet are equally beautiful with completely different casts um, in two different regions of the world. And that's the same is true of roles of ecosystems. Um, so, you know, yeah, from a, from a, from a, from a nature perspective, a de-extinct mammoth and a de-extinct passenger pigeon are new and old at the same time. Um, they are they are a divergence and a continuance simultaneously. From a scientific perspective, they are hybrids. Um, they will they will have DNA from two different species, so they are hybrids um, made with help from human beings. So, but uh, yeah, I think authentics, you know argue one way or not at the side what 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 i come away with is the passenger pigeon i hope to make the mammoth that george is making it is a new new creature but it will have a legacy it will have an essence of the the, the soul of that original species because we're not just inventing the genes we're not just looking at this and going okay how do we make an elephant live in siberia and just designing it um from, from an engineer's perspective, we're looking at a blueprint that is the woolly mammoth and going, okay, what was it that let the mammoth live in Siberia? And let's bring that into the, into the Asian elephant. So we are getting, bringing back small pieces of woolly mammoth into the equation. And those pieces had evolved over millions of years in, in, that, in the environment that we're going to return them to. Um, you know, shaped by coevolution with many of the species that this new mammoth will once again live with. That's the key part there that's really interesting is, you know, we bring back a mutation from a mammoth into an animal that's different, yet it's still tied to that environment. The, 
any of the species that will be living with mammoths again, the bison, the, the, the moose, the muskox, et cetera, those species all did live with mammoths 10,000 to 20,000 years ago. Um, and that's the beauty of, of this idea of de-extinction and interplay with extinction is, you know, unless you're undergoing a very, very rapid mass extinction, As we and are. even in a mass extinction, you know, a species goes extinct and all the other species it lived with, they don't just go away right away too. You have over, you have staggered extinctions. So if you bring back something quick enough, you're bringing it back to all the species that once lived with it. And it's almost like, uh, oh, you know, oh, the passenger pigeon, it must've went on vacation for a while, but now it came back um, yeah, for everybody that's still in the environment. Ecological ghosts, I believe, is a term I've seen to describe yeah. it. Uh, a classic example is the avocado, I know. Um, but you also have cases like European flora having adaptations to damage by animals which don't exist anymore. So they exactly. have the ability to recover from destructive force which can't be exuded by an aurochs or a bison. It has to be a rhino or an elephant, but they still have these adaptations, even though the animals yeah. have been missing for what we would consider a long time. And that's why, you know, that's why you could feasibly bring in something like a rhinoceros into Europe and species will, ex you know, it will just work in the ecosystem. It's why, it's why you can bring species back to areas when they've been gone for decades to millennia to even, you know, uh, uh, over 10,000 years is because, yeah, those, those ghost features, those, those relic traits um, are there still um, and will automatically react. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that's the thing is the, people actually have a long history of restoring species when they've become locally extirpated with, with really great end results. Um, but we know that, you know, like the wolf that lives in Yellowstone today is not the population that lived there in the 1800s. They're the same species, but they were different populations for thousands of years um, but between the ones that restored and the ones that were there. Um, the same is true of beaver in England, right? They're bringing beaver back to England, but from mainland Europe, when we know that the beaver that had lived in Britain from, you know, up until the 1600s had been isolated from Europe for 7,000 years. Um, you know, like even we, we get really bent on this idea of what is a species, when in truth, populations that we, that are part of the same species can be very different because they could be isolated for long, long amounts of time or living in very different types of eco-regions. And yet they can be plastic enough to move around and, and conservation has been doing that for a very long time. So my favorite is the fact that in 2017, uh, European bison, uh, Wissant, were introduced to a region of Spain. So they have a small herd of, of European bison in Spain. And European bison hadn't lived in Spain for 15,000 years. It would, yes. it would actually be less radical in chronological terms to reintroduce lions. Or exactly. Hyena. Yeah, it would, it would be, it'd be, yeah, lions yeah, existed in, in the Mediterranean until just uh, less than a millennia ago. Um, yeah, it, you, you could even reintroduce elephants to parts of, of Europe that have been gone uh, uh, for less time than bison have been gone in Spain. Yeah, at the time of recording this, we just did an article about the Aegean Sea where dwarf elephants seem to have been present until maybe only 4,000 years ago. So 
Um, but all of this reminds me of, it's quite similar to a blog post I did called Sisyphus on the Hill, where one of the points I made was just asking what is more unnatural? Is it having the wrong species of elephant, quote unquote, the wrong species, or is it having no elephant at all? Sort of what do we prioritize more? Our conception of how this ecosystem should be or the actual ecological function that this animal was filling when it lived? You know, it's that is a point of contention, probably more so among academic philosophers than it is among the people who who are on the ground doing conservation, simply because it, it has been seen time and time and time again that that you 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 bring in uh, a species of population to replace the extinct one, and it works, and things are measurably more productive with with the species there than when it's absent um and and the fact that like i said you know you can really never get the original back like you're always having to draw from something from somewhere else once you've extirpated something um proves the point that it doesn't matter which it is it just matters that it's there um and that it's and that it can survive there and, and take on the role um giant tortoises are probably the best example um uh because so many species of giant tortoise on Pacific and Indian Ocean islands have gone extinct and have been uh, uh, restored using species from different islands. And when you just look at the geography, you know, ge uh, the geological history of these islands, um, you know, even though these species might look extremely similar, they have been evolutionarily distinct for millions of years. Um, and yet you can swap them around uh, and, and ecosystems fare much better with those uh, megafaunal roles filled in um, than they do without them. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's been demonstrated time and time again. So the, the question has answered itself through practice. A question here then would be, in a case where you have the potential for quote unquote de-extincting a species, but you could also use an ecological surrogate, what would be the balancing act there, in your opinion? Oh, well, there's, there's, if you can use a living species effectively, then de-extinction through gene editing is unnecessary. I mean, it's just, it's just an automatic. Um, there's even no, there's no really balance there necessary. Like if there's an alternate that gets you to your end goal, that is cheaper, easier, more cost-effective, then you do that. Um, de-extinction when it comes to gene editing and things is, is really something that is, is, what, it's something you have to resort to when no other species could possibly fill the role you're trying to fill. Um, and you have to try and create something to fill that role. When you look at it and you're like, this is obviously a very important role in this ecosystem and I can't fill it with anything else. And the reason I think de-extinction is, is the favorable approach to trying to maybe do something that's more what I, what I think is more radical than de-extinction, let's say you need, you need an apex predator in your environment. And for millions of years, the apex predator has been a canid. Um, but in your particular environment, there's no living canid that could possibly survive or fill the role um, because they're not large enough or, or couldn't survive the temperatures, et cetera. And you think, okay, well, I, I need a top predator. I'll go and use a cat instead. Felines and canids are completely different ecotypes. 
they do not behave the same they do not interact with the environment the same even if they use they prey on the same organisms they induce even different fear phenomena into their prey the coevolution between one species and a felid and one in a canid is night and day different you bring in a felid to replace your canid and undoubtedly you are going to create negative impacts in your environment and this is the phenomena of invasive species biology. And this is where these things come to a head, right? Is that people can go to this, they're like, well, you can't do de-extinction because every time you introduce a species, it goes wrong. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's all about ecotype. So when people introduced, you know, there's a great example of this is New Zealand, right? Um, so rabbits were introduced to New Zealand and ended up becoming a problem. And so they thought, okay, well, let's introduce a predator of rabbits to help control the rabbits. So they brought in uh, stoats, a uh, type of weasel. Well, New Zealand never had mammalian predators. Actually, they didn't have mammals except for a couple bats at all. So any mammalian role is completely foreign. Um, and so the predatory role of a weasel was so at odds with everything that all of the native wildlife had co-evolved with that and the you know the the <laughs> the birds of New Zealand were used to looking up for the Hast's eagle or a hawk or something to come down and kill them. They were not used to being attacked on the ground or attacked in twilight hours or at night. Um, so it's, it's it's just completely different. And weasels ended up rather than preying on rabbits, they ended up just eating eggs and things and reptiles and birds and just causing havoc on the island. And so ecotype is what matters. You could reintroduce a type of predatory bird to New Zealand and it would not cause the damage that a predatory mammal does because New Zealand had predatory birds as part of its coevolutionary background for 80 million years. Um, so it's, it's all about, it's not about who the species is, but it is very much about the form that your ecological replacement takes. Form and behavior equals function. I guess uh, a question that comes up then is, what do you do when you completely lack any species you can use as an ecotype? Like say the uh, diprotodonts of South America or uh, the thylacine or, or any such example. Australia, you mean? Australia and you know parts of South America, a lot of the islands like New Zealand, as you mentioned. So that's where I think you know the the prospect of de-extinction is the is the only viable option. Um, you know that's uh, there's been and this is once again where Australia and New Zealand are a great example to call up because they had such unique fauna between the marsupial dominated fauna and the bird dominated fauna respectively. Um, there's been a lot of arguments over the years as to whether or not the invasive mammals on those continents, the invasive placental mammals have taken on similar roles to the megafauna that disappeared um, because both continents have large deer now mm -hmm. um, and Australia has some large bovids and whatnot and camels. And there's always been some tension and pull there. And there was a, just actually just a paper two, three weeks ago that finally I think put the nail in the coffin on this where um, people were really investigating the, the uh, seed makeup of coprolites of moas in particular regions of New Zealand and found that moas 
we're we're eating and consuming very different types of vegetation than living deer and and not only were they consuming different types but they were you know potentially dispersing different types of seeds because of, not just because of their diet because of, but because of how they were being digested um and so they were actually able to really finally quantify and settle that argument and go no the deer that live in new zealand now are not ecological equivalents or functional equivalents to the moas that once lived there they're they're completely different and they are favoring different types of vegetation and they are transforming the ecosystem in a way that is actually detrimental to the original biodiversity that was there um so in that instance the answer is get rid of the deer and recreate moas um it's not easy <laughs> it's definitely not something that's incredibly technically possible right this minute but it is the better solution there. Yeah. Um, and when, when it comes to large things like diprotodonts and whatnot, it's like, well, work on making a wombat the size of a rhinoceros, and then you'll fill that role. But a rhinoceros is not actually going to come in and fill that role because those are completely different ecotypes. One, a giant 4,000 pound animal is not the same as another 4,000 pound animal. So that's perhaps another question. It is, we've talked about so mammoths, are quite fortunate in that although it seems unlikely that we're going to be able to do actual cloning from frozen material we have frozen material and we have close and morphologically similar living relatives then you have an animal like a diprotodont where you have neither exactly nothing in the way of frozen material and you talked about making a big wombat but this is a big it's a lot more complicated than that (laughs) much bigger leap from a wombat to a one-ton rhino analog than there is from an elephant to a fuzzy elephant. Is that within any Wait. sort of realm of possibility? Which, by the way, to my knowledge, I don't actually think wombats and their protodonts were actually that closely related anyway, no, so they might not even no. be a similar ecotype. There was a giant exactly. wombat, though. I mean, yeah, I mean, the protodon today, it's, it's one family, but of course, the, those are deep divergent roots. And, and it's true, you know, in the pantheon of species that we could consider bringing, recreating today, the protodons do not fall into that category for several reasons. One, I don't believe anyone has ever successfully sequenced DNA from the protodon. Where they found it? I mean, yeah, where um, they even look? There's nowhere. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the fossils are from such arid environments um, that it's unlikely that there is very good DNA from any of them. Um, so, so the issue with something like a diprotodon or a notoungulate or um, you know something else that's extremely unique um, and diverged from living species by tens of millions of years um, is is the fact that what we have to wait for is a day in which we actually understand genomes enough that we we know how to reprogram traits so that we don't need to know what the original mutation was but we know that if we take a living animal and we tweak it here 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 and here we will recreate the tooth type and the lip type and the size etc so it it's definitely probably decades in the future that we'll be able to actually custom design recreations of truly unique extinct ecotypes, especially those that we cannot sequence the genome of, where we would actually have to be designing the organism from from an inventive perspective. So the mammoth is extremely fortunate in that end and the fact that that Asian elephants are 
basically woolly mammoths that live in the tropics. Um, they're they're six million years diverged, but I mean these these species are so exceptionally similar that uh, in my personal work on ancient DNA um, at uh, Hendrick Point R's lab, there were two instances in which uh, lab members sequenced DNA from bones that were supposed to be a mastodon and a woolly mammoth, and they ended up being circus elephants. Um, because of course in the 1800s in like the midwest area uh 1700s 1800s you know if a circus was going through and one of their elephants died they just buried it wherever they were uh so fast forward 100 years 150 years um and someone's digging in their backyard and oh my gosh they find these giant elephant like bones and they're practically pseudo fossilized and you got you know a mammoth femur is an elephant femur they're virtually identical. And so it's like, you know, you take it to the museum and it's been dug up from something that's thousands of years old. So you think, oh, this has to be mammoth. And it turns out it's a circus elephant. So that's how, that's how similar those are. Um, and we do have good quality genomes from mammoths. So we're very fortunate for things like mammoths and, and things like passenger pigeons where we have extremely close living relatives that are not only close genetically, but very close ecologically um, where Whereas, yeah, with other species, we just don't have that option um, yet, yet. But I do believe it's that that day will come. Um, that you know, people are working right now on fully synthesizing a human genome. Um, the the ca the capabilities people will have, even just in the next decade, will probably uh, astound all of us talking right now. So, you know, I mean, it's worth noting that CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing didn't didn't exist until 2012 um and you know we're now we're talking about recreating mammoths because of that technology so the moment people can just synthesize full genomes and design traits from scratch i mean it's really going to open up a lot of doors for de-extinction at that point de-extinction will end up being possibly you know we'll have to come up with new terms because if you're creating an extinct organism from scratch rather than from an original blueprint, um, it's definitely something a little different than what we're doing today. This is Tristan speaking, coming to you from a separate recording. That concludes the first part of our interview with Ben Novak, but we have a second part already up on the website too. Now. That part involves the passenger pigeon in much more detail. It's extinction, it's ecology, it's interactions with humans outside of the mere shooting. It's a fascinating episode, and you should definitely go listen to that too. But for the time being, we hope you enjoyed this one and that you tune in again 